0: My name is Chris, and I'm glad you're here today. I'm the pastor at Encounter Church, and we've been in this series, we started at the beginning of December, called Oh What Fun, and uh, this has really been a series about reclaiming the merry and merry Christmas, because ironically, the, the season that we're supposed to be the jolliest, the happiest, the holiest, whatever that means, right, um, We're ironically, we feel the tension to not have it. It's the hardest season to get the very thing that the season promises, and so we've been talking about, over the last three weeks, how to reclaim that, how to put Mary back into Merry Christmas. And um, so if you weren't here, maybe you're new today, i really encourage you to kind of engage with the series. You can do it through the app or our website. But we looked at the first week, how to deal with difficult people, because we all have Cousin Eddie's in our family. And, um, and if you don't, you might be the Cousin Eddie. And, um, and then we looked at how to deal with difficult circumstances and the stress and the pressure, because holiday season is still stressful. There's a lot of pressure involved, so we talked about how to navigate that. And then last week, we looked at Mary and talked about how to have a merry Christmas, so Mary, the mother of Jesus kind of Christmas, and the example that she provides for us. And today, I want to kind of jump into the very core promise of Christmas. And for some of you, just to kind of get uh, into the, the jumping into the Christmas story, <clears throat> maybe you're not sure what you even believe about the Christmas story. And so hopefully, this is insightful for you, um, because I want to give you kind of the core fundamental promise of the Christmas story. And uh, we oftentimes talk about this idea around Christmas, and today I think we can discover what it really means. Uh, To start, I want to take you back to this day in 1914. It's World War I. It's in the trenches. Trench warfare is um, going on in Belgium, and about 60 yards separate the German trench line from the French-British trench line. And as the morning sun comes up, the British and French soldiers and their trenches hear the sound of Christmas carols coming from the German side. And the British and French soldiers start to sing along, and soon the Germans and the British and the French are singing the same Christmas carols together. And this turns into one to two songs, and then the next thing you know, they're crawling out of the trenches, and people who had been exchanging gunfire uh, just hours before are now exchanging hugs and handshakes. And uh, it, this moment that gets captured becomes known as the, the Christmas Eve uh, truce or the miracle of Christmas Eve. It, it was a rare moment in World War I, which at the time was one of the most brutal, devastating wars in human history. And here's this little bright spot. Um, the, the history accounts of that day talk about the hugs and the handshakes, talks about the, the drinking together, the playing games, rumored even. Some soccer matches played out in between the two sides instead of gunfight. Uh, One of the soldiers, a guy named Bruce Barron's father, uh, who was a British commander, wrote back to his family that his machine gunner, uh, who was kind of in a civil life, uh, a hairdresser, that the moment of seeing his machine gunner with clippers cutting the hair of a German soldier who was knelt down in front of him. And the world was kind of swept up because they was just kind of recognized if there was any day in the year where this could happen, it would be Christmas. Because at the core of the Christmas story is the promise of peace, right? Isn't that one of the, the phrases that you see everywhere? Peace on earth. And that the fundamental proposition of the Christmas story is peace. Peace that you and I can experience. Peace that you and I, I think, desperately long for. And so today I want to take you to the Christmas story, and I want to look at this kind of core proposition, this kind of the banner over the Christmas story, and not just sing and celebrate peace like we've done, but actually talk about how we can engage and experience peace too. Um, If you have the Encounter Church app that Jason referenced earlier you can click on message notes. It'll be preloaded for you. If not, you'll have the scripture kind of text around me. Let me give you a little bit of a backdrop. Maybe you're new to church, kind of new to the to the whole Bible experience as, well, as a whole. Um, the Christian Bible is really a two-volume set. It's a combination of the Jewish scriptures, which Christians call the Old Testament, and the New Testament. And so those two volumes put together form what is known as the Christian Bible. Um, those 66 volumes, those 66 books kind of collectively come together. The New Testament is all about Jesus, his life message and resurrection, and then the church that was started out of his message and resurrection. So the first four books of the New Testament are biographies about Jesus. Jesus is pretty substantial to the Christian faith. And so four different biographers with different audiences at different time all write about the message and the life of Jesus. And so that's why Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are the first four books of the New Testament. Now, the one I want to talk about today is a guy named Luke. If you were here last week, I referenced a little bit about Luke. Luke was unique. Matthew writes his gospel to a primary Jewish audience. Matthew was a Jewish man who had followed Jesus, who who was Jewish too. And so his The words he chose were all insider language. It was something that growing up Jewish, you would have understood. But if you were the rest of the world, which was called Gentiles, you didn't understand it. So Luke comes along and Luke writes a biography about Jesus for the Gentiles, the rest of the world. Luke is a doctor, he's a historian, he's a thinker, he's a researcher. And so Luke sets out to write his biography from interviews and from investigative journalism. He goes to the places where Jesus lived. It's why we know the birth story, because Luke sits down and interviews Mary. Luke's account has got a lot of rich history about the births of Jesus, the celebration of Christmas that you don't find in the other biographies because of Luke's bent. But because Luke was um, Gentile, because he had this global mindset, because he grew up in the Roman Empire, Luke writes the Christian Christmas story with some nuances that would have been instantly recognizable for people reading it, that over the course of the last 2,000 years has been lost on us. And what I want to do is I want to take you to the, not just like reflect on the christmas story i want to go real time in the christmas story i want us to walk the terrain because there's uphills and downhills there's turns there's lefts and rights and i want you to know the original context so that the word peace that luke was trying to declare and scream like luke uses the word peace and he uses the word joy more than any other time any other biographer like he he's screaming these themes throughout his letter and so i want you to understand why he chooses to share the way he shares so it begins in those days caesar augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. You have to remember this is the, in this little tiny sleepy town of Bethlehem where the Christmas story is playing out, the world as a whole is under the control of the Roman empire and thousands of miles away in Rome sitting on top of Palatine Hill was a palace uh, that was Caesar's and Palatine Hill. If you've ever been to Rome sits, sits way above the city uh, where the ancient city of Rome would have been and, it was the, the emperor would have literally been on top of the world. And so in his palace, he decrees that his people should be counted so that taxes can be formed and so that his empire can run. And that's what's happening. And remember Luke's a historian. That's why he says in these parentheses, this was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria because there was multiple censuses that were taken while he was the governor of Syria. And Luke, being this very detailed, anal, kind of historical type, wants to make sure he gets these details right. And everyone went to their own town's to register, because uh, to do this, you had to go back to your homeland, you had to go back to where your family was from, and that's where your entire family would be counted. So what happens is Mary and Joseph travel from Nazareth in Galilee all the way to Judah Bethlehem town of David because he belonged to the house in the line of David. Both he and Mary came from David's kind of bloodline. So they have to travel 90 miles, three days journey to get to where their families live so that they can be counted. Now what's incredible about this is that when you kind of take a moment and you pause and see the terrain that this story is playing out on, uh, we take for granted how easy it is to travel at Christmas time or any time. We we live in a really kind of, honestly, throughout human history as a whole, we live in a really rare time where it's stable. You don't have to worry about crossing the border into New York or to Rhode Island and, and uh, like a band of an army is waiting on you because they're getting ready to try to attack this state, right? Massachusetts doesn't have to fear Vermont and New Hampshire teaming up to make an end run, Right? I mean, as about as intense as it gets warfare-wise is when the Red Sox and the Yankees play, right? I mean, that's about as intense as we get. But imagine if it wasn't just baseball. It was life, and every day you crossed a new border, there was a threat. This was what it was like in the ancient Roman world. This was what it was like in the ancient world altogether. And then what happens in this golden era? The Roman Empire, Caesar, he takes over most of the known world and he builds roads and he establishes governments and he has local government structures where he controls. And all of the world, all of the world for a very brief period is in a period of peace. Rare, incredible peace. So, so rare, in fact, that historians would come along later and label that period as the Pax Roma. And what Pax Roma literally means is the period of Roman peace. Because you could sleep in your house not having to fear a barbarian kind of raiders coming in over the hillside to kill you and your family, which in the ancient world was one of the common fears. So this is rare. Roman peace is everywhere. And it's this moment, it's with all of this rich history that Luke writes this letter to say, hey, in the midst of the Roman peace, Peace. There were a people who did not have peace. You see, the Jews were—they were an oppressed people. It didn't matter that the Roma peace was going on around them. They were not a people at peace. They were a people who were oppressed. Um, I was driving one time and uh, came across one of the larger cattle fields I'd ever seen in my entire life. It was just driving along. It's just this fence. And all these kind of just beautiful large cows that were just waiting and screaming to be put into a burger form were grazing along the grass. And I'm driving down the road, and I'm like, man, this is a really sweet deal. Like, if you're a cow, this is like spacious land. The grass is green. I don't know what cows do for fun, if they frolic or if they play cow games. But if they did, this is the place, ideally, you would want to do it. And as I'm driving down the road, having strange thoughts, like, honestly, when I'm sitting here, I'm like, I wonder if I danced, if anyone would see it. Right? I have these strange thoughts while I'm driving down the road. And as I'm driving down the road, I notice that they all have these little tags in their ear. I'm like... These are like dead cows walking. They're not at peace. They don't have a sweet setup. They're being fattened up because they're property, just waiting to be eaten. And this is what it was like to be a Jewish family in the midst of the Roman Empire. Yeah, you had spacious land. Yeah, you didn't have to worry about syrians coming in to attack you you didn't have to worry about babylonians you didn't have to worry about all these ancient invaders that had plagued the history but you did recognize and remember every time the romans made you do something that you had a tag in your ear and you didn't belong to yourself that you were property and this census this census screams you don't belong to yourself This census screams you're a people who are in bondage you're not free And so the Jewish people for hundreds of years and really in promises of thousands had cried out for rescue, had cried out for a Messiah. But I think one of the struggles that they had had during this time period is they had in the midst of longing for peace, they had started to mislabel what peace really was. This is why the Christmas story would have been so surprising for people hearing it for the first time. The... This nation wasn't looking for a baby to be born in a manger. They were looking for a general to come in with a horse and a sword who had tactical, brilliant, strategical, military ways of conquering the Romans. And what does God send? He sends a baby. Like, what can a baby do to the Roman Empire? See, I, I have a six-year-old little girl and. Um, So one of the kind of nightly routines that we do is we pray. And so typically, Ella will pray first, and then either Jenny or I will pray second. And so this is kind of in a period just recently where Ella's learning that she has like an inside brain voice and then an outside mouth voice, which is really kind of profound. You know, we kind of take that for granted. And so she's like, Daddy, I'm going to pray in my inside head voice tonight. And I'm like, all right, girl, rock it. And so she goes to pray, and she throws the blanket over her head, I, re- I guess, to really get focused. So the blanket flips over, she's got it in, and I hear, God, I pray for Rosie, and for Ellie, and for Colin. And, and she proceeds to pray through every single kid in her class, which is, is really sweet. Okay, yes. And so I'm like, oh, this is tender. So then I pray, then we say amen, and I'm like, Ella, sweetie, that was really precious. You prayed for everybody in your class. And she went, oh! <gasps> Daddy, how did you know I was praying in my head? I was like, well, Daddy knows everything, so let that be a lesson to you. Write a note to your teenager self and say, dear teenager self, Dad hears everything, right? But what Ella was doing was Ella was mixing up what was going on the inside of her with the outside. She hadn't fully understood that yet, and I'd like to think that as adults, we get it too, but quite honestly, we don't either. Because some of us, when we get stressed and when we get high pressure and things feel like they're falling apart, we try to clean up our house or we try to make our desk look organized and or we, we start to believe that if I can just get that job or that relationship or if that relationship would end or if my kid just listened to me, right? I mean, we fill in the blank of all these different things that if we just got those things, then we'd finally be at peace. Because we confuse the inside and outside. We think if I got peace out there then peace would happen in here. And, and I think what Ella was doing was the same thing that we see in this story with these people and the same thing that we see in our story in our lives, that we fall into the trap of believing if I had peace out there, then I'd finally have peace inside of here. If I just got that doctor's report, if I just got that promotion, if I just got that office, and we think that would fix this on the inside. And in the end, we settle for a counterfeit peace. It's not really peace, it's just a release of pressure, which is not the same thing. A, no bullets firing doesn't mean peace. I mean, North Korea, right now, we're not at peace with them. But we're not actively engaged in a war. It's just a disarmament right now. And I think in many times in our lives, we will settle for counterfeit peace when because we've mislabeled what real peace actually is. And this is the this is kind of the declaration the headline of the Christmas story is that there is something better than just having pressure relieved in our lives. There is something stronger and greater than just having a schedule that's not stressful for a day. There is a peace that transcends circumstances. There's a peace greater than what's going on around us. That's the fundamental proposition of the christmas story that is what the christmas story declares is that peace is possible even in the midst of dark times but the story continues right because luke is wanting to unpack this idea of what the christmas story really represents and so what does it say it says and there were shepherds living in the fields nearby right the story kind of takes this weird turn and i I've, I've already put my cards on the table that I'm strange and I think a lot. And so this is one of those kind of passages where I kind of leap out. And I, and I think, why shepherds? Why not haberdashers? Why not like cobblers to repair shoes? Why not attorneys? Why not lawyers? Why not doctors? Why not teachers? Why not athletes? Why not sports journalists? Like Why shepherds? I mean, God Almighty, getting ready to announce the birth of his son, he could do it any way possible. And he chooses the most unlikely group of people to make a birth announcement to. Shepherds. And now, this would have been really controversial if you're kind of in this context and you're hearing this, because shepherds, if you committed a crime and the only eyewitness was a shepherd... You didn't fear getting prosecuted for that crime because shepherds were were held in such low value that a shepherd would not even be allowed to come into a courtroom to testify against you. That's what they thought about shepherds. They were lowly, dirty, riffraff that lived out in the fields that had no business being in the real world with real people. They were worthless. And yet, how does God choose to reveal the birth, the most magnificent, incredible moment, God stepping onto planet earth. How does God choose to do that? He does it through the shepherds because he's wanting to make a statement that peace, the peace that he offers is for anyone, anywhere. It's not for a select educated group. It's not for a select religious few. It's not for the powerful and the prominent in Palatine Hill and Rome. It's not for the educated and the elite. It's, It's not even for the middle class. It's for anyone, anywhere, no matter what. No matter what you've done, no matter where you're coming from, that he's for you. God breaks through the heavens to declare and to sing and to praise and to make a statement that he knows, sees, and loves anyone. The shepherds would have been blown away that God even knew that they were there because they're just shepherds. People did not even look them in their eyes you ever notice that we do that with homeless people? We, we just don't look them in their eyes. Maybe they won't see us. And in that moment, we rob them of humanity. And the shepherds are like, God looked us in the eye and saw us in this field. How profound is that? That he knows me where I am. And that peace is held out for everyone. But That's really a good thought, but why shepherds, okay? Right? Why shepherds? I think there's another reason. It's not just God's trying to make a statement about peace and the message that He brings of good news of great joy is for all people, like he says. These shepherds were unique. You see, the center of Jewish life, the center of Jewish theological, religious structures, like the intellectual thinking class, the center of the Jewish world was Jerusalem. Bethlehem is a little sleeping community outside of Jerusalem. And so the shepherds who often supported the sacrificial system that was the bedrock of the Jewish system, religious system at the time, they oftentimes traveled around Jerusalem with their sheep. And what we know about Bethlehem and some of the archaeological findings is that this would have been one of the spots that the shepherds in charge of the sacrificial sheep for the sacrificial system, this would have been one of the places they would have spent time. And so why these sheep? Why these shepherds? I think because their sheep were special. Their sheep were destined for the temple. And I think God was stepping in to give them an an early warning that their services would no longer be needed. That they would no longer have to provide the sheep for the sacrificial system. Because in in the angel's words, that today in the town of David, a savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah and the Lord. That they make an announcement to these shepherds. Hey, I've got great news. And then I've got some not so great news. The great news is it's great news. It's good joy. It's awesome. Today is born a savior, a Messiah, a Lord in the town, just right down the road. Wonderful news. Woo-hoo! Not so good news is that you're going to be unemployed soon. So you may want to start some on-the-job skill set training. You may want to go foster some goat herding. Or maybe go and put your, your applications into a couple of different places. Because we're not going to need you anymore. We, A Savior is coming to step in for what you have been doing these years. And that in the midst of this promise, something that the Jewish people intimately knew Was that the biggest piece that was needed when they really sat down to reflect that what the Jewish theologians had understood that was at the bedrock of the Jewish faith was that something was broken in the world and the something that was broken was me and you. That I I don't know about you, but if you're ever around kids, when I was a kid, no one had to teach me to lie. I didn't have to be taught to wait to three when my mom counted the three. Like no one sat me down and said, all right, here's a critical point. You need to know that woman, that woman. Yeah. She's going to say, Brian, Christopher Causey, you better do this. And I'm going to count to three. Now your impulse is going to move on one, but don't move on one. Don't give in. Don't give in two. Two two still kind of as close to one. You want to make a statement with your obedient disobedience. So you move on three when the E comes out, but you sprint. So it looks like you're doing it fast, right? I I didn't have to get taught that. I didn't have to get debriefed on how to move on the E of three. It's because I recognize what has always been recognized, that what's broken in the world is me and you. We're broken. That the greatest war, the greatest lack of peace is not happening out there. It's what's happening on the inside in here. I am my own worst enemy. If there's anyone who could step into my life and derail it or to destroy it, it's not someone out there. It's not someone living in the White House. It's someone living in my house. It's me. I'm the one who holds the key to my own destruction. And chances are you do too. And what had been attempted over and over and over again to tame that difficult, resistant, rebellious individual, you and me, had failed. It hadn't worked. And Jesus was stepping in. This birth announcement was to say that God was coming in and he was going to make a way and he was going to provide rescue from our biggest enemy, which is ourselves. Because we had turned our backs on the creator of life. And guess what? When you turn your back on life, the only thing that you can find is death. And that's what we'd found. And that great Jewish thinkers throughout human history from the scriptures... Have point is, it's why death surprises us. It's the one certainty. Not even taxes, because you can grow up in other countries where there's not. But death is certainty for all of us. And yet, somehow, we get surprised by death, and we get surprised by time. I've always been intrigued by the fact that time surprises me and catches me off guard. I'm like, what happened? My daughter turned six. I remember holding her just yesterday. But I've never looked at a fish who's surprised by water, Right? I've never met a fish who says, Man, that water, I'm swimming some days. And I'm like, Oh, where did that come from? It's wet. It never happens. I think the reason you and I get surprised by time is because we were made for more than just living in time. That the reason you and I get moved, that's, that there's something about death that affects us in a way it doesn't affect any other animals. Is because we understand death isn't supposed to be here. It's not right. And that this is what, this is the backdrop for the story of Christmas. That instead of God sending a general, he sends a baby who crushes the power of sin and death so that we could have life and peace. And that was my story. I didn't grow up in a religious context like some of you. And I remember going into adulthood and I, I felt that there was something lacking. The best way to describe my life at the time was I was thirsty, but all I was drinking was salt water. If you drink salt water, it has this tragic, evil double-edgedness. It feels like you're drinking something, but it just makes you thirstier. And that... People can literally dehydrate, floating on the ocean, drinking salt water, surrounded by a sea of water, and yet dehydrate and die. And that was me in 2001. Pouring, drinking, trying to fill up what was lacking on the inside. I was confusing, thinking if I just had peace out there, then I'd have peace in here. And sometimes there's moments where maybe I don't have peace in here would creep into my head, and I would try to cover it up or numb it or distract myself from it. And I was just drinking salt water. And then I came across the Christmas story and what it meant in the heart of what God was offering out, that he doesn't offer a counterfeit peace. He offers a peace that's powerful. A peace that's for anyone, even someone like me, with all the things that I've done. That, That he knew me in my worst and loved me and gave up his best. That that's the promise, that's the power, and that's the beauty. That the peace that the Christmas story points us to is a peace that stays strong even when else, everything else around us is falling to pieces. When I was a young boy, I had this really surreal moment. I was uh, happened to be in the path of a hurricane. And we were kind of hunkered down in a home, uh, and kind of the entire house is shaking and it's violent and tornado warnings and watches and i mean it's just this terrifying moment and in the midst of all the wind howling and the storm and the sleet and the hail and the rain and the wind shaking the house it all of a sudden got eerily quiet and the guy that we were kind of hunkered down in the hallway with said oh it must be the eye and i remember walking outside and even though i was a young kid like it still was so surreal it's stuck with me because I'm standing in this yard, and, and the world is literally, it's pieces of the world, tree limbs and branches, and you can see all around the horizon these incredibly dark, scary clouds, and they are right in the middle where I'm standing. The sky is blue. The sun is shining, and it's calm and peaceful while the entire world around me is being ripped to shreds. In pieces. And yet there's this moment of surreal, serene peace. And I think when we talk about the Christmas story and the peace it offers, that's the type of picture of peace the Christmas story is communicating. A peace that is so calm, a peace that is so strong, that even if your world is falling to pieces, you are not in the midst of it. A peace that's greater than a diagnosis, a peace that's greater than a layoff, a peace that's greater than a relational structure, a peace that's greater than the financial pressures, a peace that's greater than your teenager, a peace that's greater than the parent of a teenager, a peace that's bigger and larger and wider than all the unknowns in life, that's, that's greater and stronger than all the uncertainties and the fears that creep in when we lay in bed at night, a peace that holds us even if everything else around us looks like it's falling apart. That's the peace the Christmas story offers. A peace that says, your world can fall to pieces, but you don't have to. And that's beautiful, and that's powerful, and that's moving. And that is what Luke was communicating. That this is what the birth of this boy means to the world. Not a counterfeit peace, but a confident peace. At the very core of who we are. That's greater and stronger than anything else in the world. And for some of us, maybe you've longed for that. You've hurt for that. You've pursued your life like me. And you've drank salt water. And you have chased after things that have left you empty. And maybe you're like, how do I get this? I want to be in the eye. Not in the storm. And I would say we look to the shepherds. In verse 15, in the midst of all that's told to them, right, these angels show up and they're not chubby baby angels, right? They're, it's the rock. It's they're beefy. They're strong, right? They crossfit on the on the side. I mean, these these angels are jacked, and that's why they're like, don't be afraid, because we look awesome, right? I mean, that's you don't get afraid of a bunch of little baby chubby angels with tiny little wings. You're like, oh, look at these little naked chubby babies. No, they're like, do not be afraid, though we break you, right? I mean, this is what the moment looks like. And what do they say? They say, hey, here's this great news of joy, right? A Savior's been born. And they say, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace to whom though his favor rests. And then verse 15, when the angels had left them and gone into heaven, right? The angels give them this invitation to go see, experience the peace and the joy that they've just promised. And they say, let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened. Which the Lord has told us about, that there was an invitation from the angels, and that for some of us, that we need to respond the way the shepherds did, which was to accept the invitation, to say, "I want that peace. I want that in the core of who I am. And my world is falling to pieces, but I want the peace that that keeps me strong even in the midst of that. And if that's you, then when I pray at the end in a few minutes." I just invite you to pray with me. A simple prayer that captures the essence of what it looks like to accept what this gift is. And I, and I know, like, there's a temptation to say, well, that's really simple. I just pray this prayer with you. That doesn't make sense. All of this complexity, all of this, like, craziness. And it's like, yes, it really is that simple, but it's not that simple. Right? I love Amazon OneClick, it transformed my life. Right. I can shop for 13 people in 11.2 seconds. Right. Done. One click is not simple. Amazon did all the work on the back end. They did all the heavy lifting. They did all of the financial regulations. They figured all of that out so that I could make the one click. And that what the angels are announcing is that God has one click this thing. There's no longer sheep after sheep after sheep prowling through the temple to be sacrificed. Jesus one clicked hope and salvation and forgiveness and grace. He one clicked it all. And that's why it is that simple because he did all the heavy work. And that for some of us, maybe you're in the midst of the storm or you're going into Christmas and You're going to this holiday season and there's there's layoffs looming, there's sickness looming, there's struggles looming, there's maybe going to sit down at a table where a loved one, I've got two different friends right now who um, have both lost loved ones who are my age, and I recognize that some of us are stepping into that. And you're like, how do I experience peace in that? I've accepted what the shepherds accepted. I've accepted that gift. What is that? That is to go back in to be reminded that the baby that we celebrate becomes a man. And that that man dies on a cross and then three days later comes back from the dead victorious. Think about it. Luke writes this out 2,000 years ago almost. If you were a betting man or a woman... And you were sitting there, and the question was offered, hey, who do you think is going to be remembered? Who do you think the world will know in 2,000 years? A little tiny baby born in an animal shelter in the middle of nowhere in a far-flung Middle Eastern state of the great Roman Empire? Or Caesar Augustus in his palace sitting on Palatine Hill to celebrate and to commemorate the number of people he's conquered? He orders a census so he can figure out how much money is going to come into his pockets. Who's going to be remembered? And if you had popped into a time machine and said, let me tell you, there's going to be a baby born in an animal shelter in the middle of nowhere. And that baby, 2,000 years from now, almost every single person on planet Earth will know his name. And the census, this great act of this great king, no one will even know. Because Caesar Augustus is his title. It's not his name. And I would wager that most of you don't know the name of the Caesar who ordered this decree. And the census, that great census, oh, that's just the backdrop to a baby being born. That is what you and I return to, to say that's the kind of power and confidence. That's the kind of victory that we stand in the midst of. That empires will rise and fall, emperors will live and they will die, but one empire, one truth, one hope, one grace, one one power stands above them all. And that you can stand in the midst of that, and it is stronger. He is stronger than all of the insanity and the craziness that this life can bring. And then for some of you, I recognize, maybe you're struggling with anxiety, and you're working through, and you're like, okay, I got all that. Help me take some next steps. I'm really, I just need some nitty-gritty, practical kind of stuff for the anxiety I'm struggling in. And so what I've done inside the app is I've pointed you back to a message I did in July and this church has grown so much, honestly, probably half of you weren't even there that day, or probably actually three-fourths wasn't even there that day when I spoke it. And it's a really helpful message if you're dealing with anxiety. It's simple, it's clear, it, it just unpacks what does it look like to foster peace, not anxiety. Because there's a choice involved that you and I can make, and it's a really helpful message. So I've put that link in there as just a way to kind of go back and engage with it and to listen to it and uh, to kind of be able to take some next steps because at the end of the day what the Christmas story has held out for all of us is a promise of peace a peace that's more powerful than the world that we find around us falling to pieces a peace that can hold us, secure us save us and rescue us a peace that is stronger and greater than anything this life has to throw at us and that's what we mean when we say peace and joy are the banners and the headlines Have a Merry Christmas.